UK Motor Talk. Well, hi everyone, you join us again for another thrilling podcast as we have spent some more time not quite fully in lockdown this time. It's been springtime since we last spoke. It was snowing, I think, on our last podcast recording. And today we are full of the joys of spring. And I'm Mike. I'm Jim. Good evening. I'm Graham. Good evening to you. And I'm David. How are you? Not so bad, not so bad. I'm just, yeah, it's been a, a very funny couple of weeks weather-wise, hasn't it? I mean, it was uh, the first day I was walking out and about all day at work without a jacket on today which was quite nice and uh, lovely weather but then yeah snow a week ago so very uh, very odd weather but I always feel better at this time of year you know the clocks have changed and it's just a bit warmer a bit sunnier you know you don't feel like you're going to get rickets just because you have to go to work all day and you're a bit short of vitamin D the sun is shining and tracks are opening and uh, life is hopefully looking a bit better I think so so what have people been up to since we last spoke not a lot, stayed indoors really, don't like going out anymore. <laughs> I've made a Land Rover, and we'll post a picture up of this on, on the socials, but this is something for my, my little boy's birthday, he's two this week, and uh, my other half wanted to do a, a jungle-themed party, and of course, in a jungle, what do you always see? You have to see a Land Rover. Land Rover is the go-to jungle expedition vehicle, isn't it? It's It's always been that, so... I've made a 2D Land Rover, which I quite enjoyed making, if I'm honest. Although I don't want to detract from all the animals and snakes and bits and pieces. But I, I do wonder whether it might be more reliable than an actual Land Rover. I guess that remains to be seen. It only got to last a day, so probably about the same as an actual Land Rover. Who knows? Yeah, that's probably about right for its first visit back for repairs, isn't it? Well, confidence in the product. I mean, we've uh, sadly said goodbye to, to Prince Philip, who... As a bit of a joke, originally said just chuck me on the back of a Land Rover and drive me to Windsor. Um, and that is exactly what they did. He designed his own Land Rover to be carried to Windsor. But they had to build two of them just in case one broke. That is that is faith and confidence in your product, isn't it? It's like Air Force One. There's always two of those. There's two Air Force One, <laughs> or two planes which serve as Air Force One. It's only Air Force One when the President's aboard. But they have two. And in case one of them breaks, there's another one that's a carbon copy and they can leap straight in it. So, um, yes, there's there's precedent there, I think. President of a president. Why not, indeed? But I liked, uh, I, you know, it was a, a sombre affair watching the royal funeral, but it's always uh, an event and it's always fascinating to see what's going on. But the the level of shine, cleanliness and detailing that had gone into all the cars beforehand, I mean, being televised the world over, millions of people watching, and, the uh, you know, not a swirl mark, not a buffer trail inside. All the cars look fantastically well cleaned and uh, no bird poo on any of them. Just to clarify, it's not okay to pop up and say, can I have the name of your detailer, mate? Um, (laughs) Definitely not okay. So, moving swiftly on, in other news, we've had the World Car of the Year, haven't we? Yes, it's been a long time coming, but the uh, results were announced uh, this afternoon. It's pretty much as expected. The Volkswagen ID4 won it, but then there are the performance car category, which was won by Porsche, the luxury car category, which was won by, unsurprisingly, the Mercedes S-Class. Well, it's the default luxury car, isn't it? Well, it, it is, and, and quite rightly so. I haven't driven one for a year or two, but uh, I've driven the number in the past and enjoyed the experience every time. And the Land Rover Defender, which was also uh, featured in its category, Design of the Year, indeed. I, I think the Land Rover Defender is, is a quite worthy winner of Design of the Year because I think it's a fantastic-looking thing. I do wonder whether maybe it doesn't look tough enough for what it, it historically does. And I think 
the defender, yes, you, you do see them on, on the streets of Chelsea, but they are brilliant for towing a massive trailer with tons of stuff on and chucking a bale of hay in the back and hosing out the inside. I I, I think I would, I would struggle to do that with the current defender just because it's a bit too pretty. It's a bit like, and hear me out on this, a bit like the transit. If you've seen a, a, a transit custom, the inside of them are, are, are glorious. They are really a nice thing, but I wonder maybe a bit too nice to be covered in mud and dirt and all kinds of bits of plaster or paint or whatever. We've had this conversation before, then not we? We said that the new Defender has moved away from being what it was, which is a utilitarian vehicle. It's become an icon in and of itself, and I think they probably are looking now to see whether or not bringing in a utilitarian or a perceived utilitarian replacement is going to be worth it. I I think it's always on the cards with Land Rover because if there's a market for it, they'll make it if people are willing to pay for it. And personally, I think I would like to see that. I'd like to see them bring back something that you could do all those things with. As you mm. say, you know, do all the towing, throw all the crap in, hose it out at the end of the day. Don't forget, these are the people that gave us the hose-out SUV, the very first SUV, you know, the, the off-road Range Rover, the original VLAR version of which now there is a VLAR to confuse things. But, you know, they were the people that gave us this. And if anyone can give us a, a new iconic hose-out Land Rover Defender, it's going to be Land Rover, I would say. I, I'm just confused about the naming because if they do bring out a more utilitarian version, what are they going to call it? Having used Defender, perhaps inappropriately, uh, what are they going to call the Defender Defender? If they bring one out, which is a genuine utilitarian, but I must also Wet give a defender. nod to the yes, must also give a nod to uh, what, what I thought was one of the more interesting looking cars. But that was the Honda E, which oh, won the sort of brilliant. urban car category. Brilliant, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant car. car. However, as we said before, for me a little bit of a disappointment because when we saw it at Geneva, it was that bit more squared off and it had it was even more retro. And you're not, I know. Honda really hate it. They say in all their press releases, don't call this car retro, but that's definitely what it is. And you can plug retro games consoles into it and everything else. It's a retro car. But it's so cool looking. And it's, it's one of those that, that you look at, and I don't think... It's, it's not a cheap car. It isn't a cheap car at all. But it's... I'll go so far as to say it's almost pretty classless. You could, you could use it as a city runabout. Anyone could use it. And I think look relatively cool. I think is that is retro the key to tapping into the market that can afford it because yes. it's, it's no good targeting a car like that to you know 17 18 19 20 year old first time car buyers first time drivers etc because they they just simply can't afford it but mm. by making it look like you know a Peugeot 205 or a bit like a Golf or like the original Civic and things like that. Do you look at that and think, oh, my mate had one of those or I had one of those and some of my happiest memories are in a car that looked like that, so I'm going to go and buy one of those. Now I can afford it. I think that's probably a safer strategy, I would say. So there's no harm in retro at all. Well, it's a bit of a trick that Nissan pulled off a few years ago, didn't they, with things like the Escargo, the Pow and the um, the Figaro, you know, sort of unashamedly looking back, but with modern mechanicals, under, or if you can call the Micra even then, was getting on a bit underneath the, the various cars. But, you know, they, they are now iconic and, again, changing hands for lots of money, doing the rounds of all the collector cars because they didn't make so many of them. That's probably added to their uh, value. But I think it's a similar thing. It's the same thing that's brought the Fiat 500 back and the Mini, of course. So, you know, nostalgia definitely sells. Yeah, and the Mini's 
20 years old as well. Indeed. All of those things have been aimed at uh, a younger market by their, their producers and a younger market, and as Jim quite rightly says, that could rarely afford the product. And I, I well remember this when the micro first came on the market, but uh, a lot of other car manufacturers have made the same mistake. Go for the youth market. No, but the youth market can't afford it until it's four or five years old. And then it can become a cult classic. And very often these cars do, at the point at which the target audience can actually afford them. But, the, I mean, the uh, overall winner, the the VW ID4, I mean, that's not... You look at that, it's... I mean, it's OK. It's not pretty. It's not ugly. It's not offensive. It's, it's very, very, very very vanilla isn't it i mean it's a it's it's quite a safe bet but it looks like a normal car but i think that's the idea lots of um manufacturers want to make their all-electric car look like a normal car in inverted commas because that's what it is you know it doesn't really matter you press a button to turn it on or start it two pedals and a steering wheel and off you go so from that point of view there's there's no difference in driving the thing but it's just it's one of those you, <laughs> I don't know, I'd struggle to get excited about the way it looks and therefore I struggle to get excited about the car. I get excited about what it is and what it can do and what it means for, you know, EV transportation for, for the masses. But, you know, dare I say, when you look at something like that Peugeot e-legend concept thing, you look at that and think, I want that. And that's, is, is that not the key with EVs, that you need to get people to look at them mm. and say, I want that, I really, really want that because of the way it looks. I don't care what's under the bonnet or attached to the wheels, as long as it's got enough go, if it looks like that, I want to own one. And if it can make you want a Peugeot, then it's got to exactly. be Exactly. I mean, it, to be fair, we were having a chat at work and I, I did think both of us were having a bit of a breakdown because uh, yeah. you were discussing a, uh, a well-known motoring chain as a possible place to take your Orion to for an MOT. And then we were both sat there thinking, right. hmm, I want to buy a Peugeot. Because it's free and for no other reason, just out of curiosity to see what it would fail on. Um, because I, I don't think there's ever such a thing as a free lunch. And unquestionably, if it went in for its free MOT in inverted commas, it would fail on a wiper blade or something that would suddenly mean I had to have a, a £30 retest or something if you wanted it to pass. The point is, I'm not really fussed about it passing because I'm going to rip it apart, as I'm sure we'll talk about later. But the the ID4 for me, it's it's unsurprising. It's an electric SUV. That's what people want. People want SUVs. People want electric cars. This is both of those. For my money, I'd rather have an ID3, which I think is interesting because it looks different enough mm. and is different yeah. enough. I would concur be, with that. Yeah, to be something to be something different. I think an, an electric SUV just becomes entirely anonymous. That's the problem. The looks of the ID4 have been described as inoffensive. But, you know, for, for for all of that, we have to remember that I think it was 93 journalists from 28 countries voted or were the judging panel uh, for the World Car Awards. That's why it carries the prestige that it does. Uh, and VW were very quick to remind us that this is the fifth time they've won in the history of the awards. So... Um, a result for them, and certainly that result will probably uh, work very well in the sale rooms for them. But whatever the technology is, it just is not a good-looking car. It's an all-right-looking car. I think we can all agree it, it, it looks all right. It's fine. Um, it's, I mean, it's probably handsome, really. But uh, You wouldn't look at that and go... Um, say, say, for example, you pulled up in a car park. Just hear me out here. And you parked that next to a Stelvio. What would you go for? Oh yeah, no, is... no question about it. Yeah. And 
would you would you put a poster of an ID four up on your bedroom wall as a kid? No, <laughs> no chance. So it's, it's missing not. the point. It's missing the point. We know which yeah. one Volkswagen will send, sell as many as they can make of if they ever make it. Is the oft-threatened microbus in electric form. That thing's been coming down our roads for many, many years, and uh, I've yet to see it. But as soon as they make that thing, they will have a waiting list as long as your arm. I guarantee it. Well, if it's like the concept, it'll be fantastic, because we, we sat in the concept, which, let's face it, there's no point in driving, because it can only do 20 miles an hour. And it doesn't have door seals, which is, makes it very drafty <laughs> as well. Um, but nevertheless... It was a fantastic looking thing, and if they can make it look like that, it does have all the retro, the retro appeal of cars of that type. So, like the Mini, which, as we say, has been around for twenty years, and like I suppose the Beetle to extent, although that's got a weird back end to it now. Anyway, I digress. Then I think it will sell very, very well because it's just based on its looks. And with an electric car, does it matter so much about the engine and everything else? Not really. They they are very similar in many ways to drive. It's just how they steer and how they're damped. Formula 1 Pirelli Gran Premio del Made in Italy e dell'Emilia Romagna 2021. Uh, well, we started the uh, the podcast with an introduction about changeable weather conditions, and uh, I think changeable weather conditions brought a bit of action to the uh, the Grand Prix at the weekend just gone. I mean, that was a good race, wasn't it? That was one of those. If uh, if you're going to introduce somebody to Formula One, or if you're thinking about watching Formula One sit down and watch that race because that that just epitomized everything that formula 1 can be and everything that formula 1 should be that was uh, that was superb that race brilliant race uh, eventful is a major understatement it was just everything going on and you say as a, as a baptism of fire for anybody that's new to formula 1 it would be just about perfect well rather than going back into the archives of course well, I think yeah. I mean, we've only had two races, but that uh, that's definitely up there for the best race of the season so far. Um, but that's probably uh, even at this early stage. I think that's probably in contention for uh, for race of the season. Anyway, out of the three hundred and seventy-eight other races we've got still to come this year, that was a cracker. Emphasis on uh, on fine margins and um, you know people who put in great qualifying laps, apart from running wide on one corner, which obviously you weren't allowed to do, as it got you an advantage and. Seeing Lando go uh, onto the front row and, and then get the time deleted and how close the margins were and Perez pulled a result out of the bag. You know, the, the Saturday qualifying was exciting enough, um, yeah. never mind about the weather on Sunday. But a, a spectacular accident from George and uh, and Valtteri. And that was, uh, I, I think they had a, obviously a few choice words or digits to be extended to each other. Mm. And uh, one of them got smacked on the helmet, which was um, probably less painful than it sounds. And uh, but I think George sort of whether he was told to uh, to retract his statements afterwards by his future benefactor and probable future employer, uh, I'm not quite sure. Um, but there was a good bit of drama and politics going on afterwards. So if uh, if you haven't watched the race, you know do do sit down and watch it. Cause it was what I quite liked. Though, was it was quite easy to follow what was going on. There wasn't too much in terms of. Oh, hang on, he's pitted six times, but he's down, but he's going to have to come through. And you didn't need to watch the live timing to see where where people were and what was going on. There wasn't too much of, oh, it's raining, it stopped, it's raining, it stopped, he's he's on slicks, he's on wet. It was just quite a gradual easing of the conditions and, and all quite manageable. I think the, the Russell versus Bottas incident was, uh, was quite spectacular. Uh, it was a wonderful quote today that... Um, 
uh, Toto Wolf, who actually, uh, actually manages both of them as it happens, suggested that uh, Russell might be found a place in the Renault Clio Cup <laughs> if if things went on like that. So it's not a singing Wait, and <laughs> ringing endorsement from your future uh, employer because it's, it's, it seems inevitable that Russell will go at some point into a Mercedes seat. Probably Bottas's if there's anything much left of it. Swiping him on the helmet was... Um, well, that, for some reason, that reminded me of Suzuka 88, I think it was, um, Senna and Prost, because I seem to remember one of them taking a swipe at uh, one of the others when they landed up in the in the kitty litter, uh, having taken each other out. But what's your view, Jim, on um, who was at fault in this instance? Well, it's, I, normally, I, I tend to agree with what Toto says, because he generally speaks a lot of sense, but he's very straightforward, and he tells you exactly, you know, he tells it exactly as it is, and he's he's not afraid to uh, to state his position on things. But I, I, I think Toto's reaction was probably based more on George's reaction to the incident, mm. rather than the incident itself, because... If you watch the replays, and particularly the replays from uh, from Kimmy's on board, and we haven't got uh, we've got a nose cone replay from Valdry rather than a uh, a cockpit, you know, above the halo, above the airbox view, um, sure. to see what he does with the steering wheel. He definitely did jink to the right. There's there was space, absolutely there was space, but it's that that moment when you're just driving down the road at thirty miles an hour and somebody's waiting at a side road goes a little bit or they arrive a little bit too quick and they stop and you can tell they've braked hard because the uh, the front of the car shoots back up again it's that although they haven't gone over the line they haven't not given way uh, and Bottas didn't squeeze Russell over enough to force him to put a wheel on the grass mm, mm. he definitely jinked right and when you're doing 200 and something miles an hour and it's a bit wet and you can't quite see that just that slight little jink is enough to make you panic. You know, we've all been there on the motorway where somebody starts to go across, they see you at the last second and they, and they stay in their lane. You you still break, you still jink the steering wheel of it, you still take action, you still react to it. And and at 200 and something miles an hour, that, that situation simply magnified. So, I, yes, racing incident, because they were just racing and stuff like that happens when you race. It's, you know, changeable conditions, wet conditions, it's going to happen. But it's it it certainly wasn't, 100% Russell's fault. I'd, I'd probably no. put it 60, maybe 70% towards uh, towards Bottas on that one. But what what was Bottas doing being in a position to be overtaken by a Williams anyway? You know, you've got Lewis up at the front, and uh, even though he'd made a mistake passing a uh, backmarker, which I think was Russell, actually, as it happens. Um, so I think Toto was probably just a bit upset with Russell and the way he'd, he'd made the Mercs race go anyway. Uh, up until that stage, but Lewis recovered from it, and he had that mental clarity to get the car out, get his head down, and get on with it. Whereas that, you know, Bottas had a, another Turkey style race, didn't he? As Lewis was was just dominating Turkey last year, Bottas was spinning seven, eight, nine times. He he was absolutely nowhere, and it's you know a bit like jumping on the. Everybody seemed to jump on the anti-Vettel bandwagon after the first race, and you thought, well, well, hang on, hang on, it's it's the first race. You know, he's didn't get a lot of testing time. Give him a chance to settle in. But already, you know, people are talking about will Bottas even last the season? I, I think there were a few occasions last year where he he proved he's 
probably not quite deserving of that. And I think mm. the weekend mm. just gone was probably another example of that. I hate to say, you know, great guy though he is and, and fantastic racer though he is, is is he just not quite up to Lewis's level and in his efforts to try and reach Lewis's level or beat Lewis's level, he's he's going beyond where he can do. You know, Nico took the approach that he couldn't beat Lewis in one particular way, so he had to beat him in another way. Nicky Lauda was the same. He took the approach that he couldn't beat Alan Prost in a certain way, so he focused on other ways to beat him. Maybe Bottas's approach just, just to try and beat him in one particular way isn't quite right. I thought it was interesting Toto's uh, observation, I think that was this morning, when he was asked about apportioning blame, and he said, well... I think it was a 60-40 incident. I'm just not sure which way round it was a 60-40 mm. incident. So <laughs> that is, that's an inter- it's an interesting Toto position. But, um, yeah, when all said and done, it was a great race. I just think Mercedes should have paid a little more attention to detail and actually instructed uh, Lewis as to where the reverse gear was. Because clearly he hadn't been shown. Uh, no, I think he... I, I... Heard uh, or I read this morning that he, you know, he knew exactly where it was and where the button was and was doing the right things. It just, it just wouldn't go. Um, mm. And then I think he also realised as well where he was. He, he initially straight away realised where he was. If he tried to reverse from there, that that he'd dig himself in. So he went forwards to be able to give him at least one wheel on uh, on a bit of tarmac to give him traction. Uh, to be able to reverse back and just carry on, so that was um, that was good. And he, he seemed it seemed to ignite Lewis's passion that race. There was no there was no moaning yeah. about his tyres going off. There was no uh, no whining about the situation he was in. He was in the situation he was in, and you could see when he was um, crouching down in the pit lane in the red flag period, just going through in his head what had happened, what had gone, and then he got back in the car and just and drove like a lunatic. And got on with it, and he, but he seemed to really, really enjoy it. And you know, it's one of those things you can have the, the best race of your life, and you finish fourth, or you finish eleventh, or whatever. That I think was one of the best races of his life, and and he didn't win. He's becoming the master of the recovery drive, you know. And we've seen this a number of times in the last season when things went wrong for whatever reason, uh, penalties or errors, rare errors. But you can put him in the middle of the pack, and he will still fight his way back to the front. He simply shows his superior abilities and his determination. Wouldn't be Formula One without a, a few behind-the-scenes activities and controversies. I was quite surprised with the uh, the early part of the weekend where Aston Martin seemed to be moaning that the the rule changes, or they, they almost seemed to indicate they were about to protest the rule changes. And I was sat there thinking, what the the rule changes for next year when it's all new cars? But no, they were on about the rule changes for this year, and it's like well, it's a bit late really because they're they're kind of in and done, that the rule changes were aimed at taking downforce off them more than anyone else, which is um, not quite the case. I think it's probably down more to the fact that they they copied Mercedes' concept and not uh, not quite unlocked all of the potential. So, yes, it maybe has hit them a little bit more, but it's, uh, it's strange. They almost seem to have, have gone from a team that did fantastic work with very little money now they have a lot of money floating around. That they seem to have just suddenly dropped back a bit. I mean, I'm not sure if this is a, a hangover from the period of time where they really were strapped for cash and had to call in the receivers, etc. I, but I would have thought that the Stroll's injection of cash would have at least, you know, recovered them from that and and paid benefits this year. Um, 
I'm not quite sure, but another team with a bit of cash that's floating around there is McLaren, as they've uh, they've sold their building, haven't they, and and agreed to lease it back to give them a few quid in the uh, in the coffers. Yeah, well, it's released 170 million, which should do them for. Well, if that's one, good for uh, cash flow, take, isn't it? 170 yeah, it is. million. If, that's that's if, that's if, good for cash flow. If one takes note of the of the cap, that should keep them going for about two and a half seasons. I don't suppose it will, but. Um, the caps being reduced even further next year, so we shall see. Does rather depend on what the uh, the terms from the landlord are, though, because he might be oh. asking a king's ransom per month, <laughs> so it might might all get cancelled out and they're back to square one. But let's hope it does uh, does bring their fortunes back up a little bit. It does seem to have worked with uh, Lando Norris third on the on the podium. I noticed, which was lovely to see. Brilliant McLaren doing the business again. It's good to see their cars back near the front of the pack. They're not quite there yet, but they're very, very close. And certainly, uh, I think if you compare two long-lived car companies like McLaren and Williams, and, and Williams, uh, the change of ownership has not so far benefited them, so it would seem. Uh, but the change of ownership at McLaren a season or two ago certainly has done so, and they're, they're climbing back towards the front of the field. It's good to see. No truth in the rumour that the new landlord of the McLaren Technical Centre is Ron Dennis, by by all accounts. It's uh, just vicious rumours doing the rounds that I didn't start at all. Well, there are certainly two people in the group who are impassioned about this. Smart motorways. We've (laughs) talked about this before. None of us really like them, but you two, David, Graham, you particularly hate them, don't you, with a unbridled passion <laughs> after yes. you Graham well uh, some, sometimes it's expressed in rather lurid terms which um, we would then have to edit out but the, the fact is we have campaigned uh, well all of us have campaigned but David and myself have been particularly I think vociferous on the, on the fact that it was a damn stupid idea to start with and the latest government uh, release today uh, if one is to believe the way in which it's being portrayed by the BBC would suggest that the government are also realising that it was a pretty stupid idea and uh, the Keep Left campaign is particularly obnoxious. I do find it ironic that a Conservative government would be urging people to <laughs> go left. <laughs> but, but there's a wonderful irony there. But, uh, you know, how many flies were injured during the making of that ridiculous <laughs> The fact is that there are simply not enough uh, spaces to, to creep into and if your car goes bang in a big way, and I had two cars go bang on me last year, both on motorways, both in positions where I had no rescue. So it was legging it over the barrier and hoping for it, uh, no um, half-asleep lorry driver would pile into you. Were both of those vehicles Peugeots? Uh, no, no. <laughs> a, a Volkswagen and a Volvo. So, you know, good, solid, durable vehicles. That both suffered oil pump failures within a week of each other. There's only one common factor here, Graham. Well, to be fair, I mean, it, it, it would be catastrophic if you were parked up on the, the, the hard shoulder, the left-hand lane on a smart motorway and a, a 52-ton lorry ploughed it into the back of your Volvo. Because, I mean, just imagine the damage it would do to the lorry. It would, it would just go right <laughs> off straight away, wouldn't it? And you, you'd probably need some bumper gel to uh, to just buff the bumper back on the Volvo, wouldn't you? I think what it would be like is, you know, when you flick a pea off of a table, that's what would happen. 
the impact would be much the same. You'd, you'd hit the Volvo at so much pace, the Volvo would disappear off into the distance. <laughs> and it would <laughs> it would hit the scenery in such a way like a Skeletric car hitting a skirting board. You are sidetracking me for my anger about a particularly <laughs> stupid piece of government legislation, which hopefully will be repealed. I mean, even the, the uh, current transport minister started his reign of terror by suggesting that it wasn't such a good idea, and now the report comes out and... Uh, confirms that it wasn't such a good idea. Will they retract? No. They've decided that they will try and put more cameras in place and make it safer. And they'll rely on technology as they did with um, Test and Trace. Exactly. They're hiding behind technology. Again, thank you for saying that because that's exactly (laughs) what I was going to say. The government, oh no, technology will see us through. The white heat of technology will see us through the, the lorries campaigning their way down the inside lane not realising there's a sodding great big red cross above them insanity 85% of respondents this is quite telling and I know I have a dog in this fight but 85% of respondents to the IAM the Institute of Advanced Motorists or IAM Road Smart as it's now now rebranded said that they thought it was a stupid idea and didn't want any more introduced made designed thought of anything like that until the technology was either proven or until somebody said actually do you know what that's a stupid idea let's can it and i think that's the latter is the correct approach on this occasion i quite agree and there are a number of coroners that uh, have expressed exactly the same opinion that it's a mad idea uh well it's mad to pursue it and has led to quite a number of deaths the government, though, in the report, well, we have created 10 more places you can stop on the M25, assuming that your Volvo hasn't packed up just uh, without any kind of warning, and that they're going to have these... They seem to be more interested, in my mind, of finding people that are driving in the Red Cross lanes and actually stopping people well, again, from ploughing into the back of people in Red Cross lanes. It's, it's a bit late, then, isn't it? Oh, I'm terribly sorry you've written this car off, but you've got a fine. Well, I think that tells you all you need to know, doesn't it? Driving in a Red Cross lane, if there's a broken-down car and you don't see that broken down car, that's a mistake you make only once. It's a bit like yes. finding people who jump off the white cliffs of Dover, isn't it? It's, yes. It's utterly pointless. It, you know, contactless doesn't work that quick. You can't scan the card on the way down and pay your fine, can you? It's just completely wrong. Utterly stupid. They're going after the wrong thing. They're trying to basically divert attention from the fact that they've basically backed the wrong horse and they will not admit it. And the sooner mm. they do, they'll probably get a far lot more respect from even people like Graham and myself if they were to sort of say, yes, all right, hands up, it was a bit crap, wasn't it? Which is basically underselling it by a huge amount, but you get the idea. Is your rage directed more at the fact there is nowhere to stop if you break down or nowhere safe to stop if you break down because there is no, no hard shoulder anymore? Or is more of the annoyance at the fact that when you do break down and have to stop on the inside lane, that people behind don't see? Is the, is the more surely there's a, a disconnect here? It's a bit like, you know, well, if you drive in a red X lane, it's it's your own stupid fault. Unfortunately, it isn't because it's more likely to have a catastrophic effect on the person that's broken down and is purely innocent. But it's mm-hmm. the, where, where does the, the balance lie? Do we need better driver training? Or I mean, open your eyes and look at the big red X is not, tricky you shouldn't really have to train that that. (laughs) they're overestimating or not looking very carefully for the purposes of getting the results they want they're not looking very carefully at the driving standards in the uk at the minute which are perfectly frank crap utter (laughs) rubbish nobody looks any further than the end of their bonnet or the end of their nose or most likely the end of their mobile phone these days the cars are festooned with screens and god knows how many 
readouts and displays to divert your attention and nobody's actually looking at what they're doing so spotting a big red cross above the lane you're not meant to be in is probably the last thing they'll see until they look up from their facebook session and realize that there's a, a volvo or god knows what else <laughs> stuck in the inside lane with its hazard lights <laughs> bleakly sort of flashing away into the gloom and then they go out the back of it and someone else has lost a parent a father a husband whatever else this is this is it i mean they they are willfully ignoring the fact that the driving standards in this country are no good and until everybody is a very very good driver you can't have situations you can't have things like this existing because you can't trust the people to use them no that's the uh, the thing and i think it's the this is probably more uh, emphatic of an issue because the effect on the innocent party is far greater than the effect on the guilty party. You know, it's it's almost become okay to uh, to speed in this country because well, it doesn't really hurt anyone, does it? Because there aren't too many accidents, and that's fine. And you know, uh, if you have a, an accident when you're speeding these days, it's probably generally because you've lost control on a country road or something like that, and you slide off into a ditch or hit a tree, and the tree's generally fine, it shrugs it off, and the only person you've hurt is yourself. And that's that's fine, people are fine with that. If you do something stupid and hurt yourself, that gets sent into uh, to popular TV shows, and you can get 250 quid off it. That's fine. It's, it's when you're, you know, everybody has the right to do whatever they want, as long as it doesn't impact or hurt other people. And I think that's where, where lots of the anger lies, that invariably the people killed on smart motorways are those who found themselves in a situation not of their making. They really don't know what to do, because, you know, if, if I have a breakdown on a motorway, especially on a smart motorway, I'm, I'm out of the car, take the phone with me, and I'm the other side of the crash barrier, and I'm up the embankment, and I'm probably the other side of that as well, because if anything happens, I don't want to be anywhere near the car. I'd be in the field making friends with sheep and cows. <laughs> Statistically, even before smart motorways, the most dangerous place to, on the motorway and the, number, the, the place that had the greatest number of fatalities was the hard shoulder. So how can you make that better? Certainly not by limiting the amount of hard shoulder. Uh, and statistically, <laughs> it's got worse rather than better. But a, 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 another issue that I, that I would raise and I think does make a difference is the fact that successive Conservative governments have reduced the number of traffic police officers on patrol by something like 35%. I'm a great believer in traffic cops catching people that are driving badly, not necessarily ones that are five miles an hour over a 70 mile an hour speed limit, but most traffic officers, in my experience and my knowledge of them, have a very sensible attitude to road safety and they want to prevent the people that drive dangerously and drive very badly from continuing to do so to the risk of the rest of us. But as you'll see from any number of programmes on Channel 5 which follow the traffic cops so-called around, most of the stuff they're doing is nothing to do with traffic or traffic stops of any sort. They're going around investigating domestic violence or or burglaries or people carrying knives they're not on the motorways I mean, used to be you saw a sort of a battenberg or even even before that a jam sandwich crawling along the inside lane everyone stood up did their tie looked a little bit better and sort of made sure they were driving a bit more safely until they were passed and there are far fewer of those what police cars there are around now are the ones that turn up once the traffic officers have basically shut half the motorway and swept the glass away because they have to be there for the legal purposes or they're driving around in unmarked cars and are nicking people 
for doing the the little transgressions as you mentioned they should be there as a visual deterrence just to stop you doing the wrong thing in the first place and you're absolutely right we need more of them never thought i'd ever hear myself (laughs) saying that but yeah we need more traffic police (laughs) in very heavily white marked up battenberg cars i would add not the sneaky under the radar sort i've worked out for a program a couple of years ago how few traffic patrols there were across the uk no I qualify that across England because that was the figures that I had during a night shift. On average, something like four crews per county across the UK at night. There's not many more in the day. Those are frightening numbers. Yeah, that's not many, is it? But I, uh, I think to to sort of sum it up, it's uh, you know if if any of us had a uh, a breakdown on the motorway and we were just on our own, you know, we'd we'd be okay to grab the phone and grab your coat if it was uh, a bit wet and hop over and trape through a muddy field and be okay. But, you know, I'd be wary of letting my wife drive off on a motorway with our two kids in the back. You know, if you've got one kid on the back, well, okay, you can scoop that one kid up and uh, and hop across the barrier with them. But, you know, my wife with, with two kids, you know, one who's five and one who's six, seven months old, is, is she going to be able to get them both safely across the barrier and, and up the embankment to safety? No, she's not. No. So, no. actually, is is it safe for her to drive on a motorway these days? Probably not, because if the worst happens, then it's, it's a very dangerous situation to be in. And and when you have a a scheme or a you know a plan or a bit of technology or a way of shaving a few minutes off a few people's journeys that that puts your wife and kids at risk, that's not that doesn't quite work for me. I don't. I'd, I'd rather be in a traffic jam, to be honest. Um, yeah, it's it's not an acceptable risk, is it? That's the, that's no, the thing. That, no, it's not at all. I think the only way that a smart motorway works is if there was a sensible way of being able to produce a barrier in the lane. I appreciate this doesn't necessarily work at 70 miles an hour, but you know when you, you go to through a bus lane and they have the bollards that drop down and mm. it only lets the bus go through and then the next car goes through and it comes up and they smash the front of their car, for example. <laughs> Hilarious. Well worth two hundred and fifty quid. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that the only way you could have Pop-up that would coats. be in a in a in a graduated fashion. So that if somebody does miss it, they you know they get a gentle nudge as uh, as they occasionally do with cones that start off right at the edge and gradually narrow the lane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, something like you know the the Armco barrier that's divided up into sections. You put something on the front of that, and the first section is is brightly lit up with LEDs and it pops out an inch. The next 10 sections pop out two inches, then three inches, four inches. So slowly but surely, the sections of the Armco cantilever out to guide you out of that lane. So even if you miss the first couple of hundred yards of bright LED signage, then you get a gentle flick on the uh, the left-hand corner of your bumper to let you know, move over. Uh, yep. to wake you up, you know, a bit like the old-fashioned rumble strips on the edge of a, a motorway. If you drift over them, you get the, the buzz to wake you up, something like that. But then how it much does that cost to install a, an LED-lit, cantilevered, computer-controlled system across every single smart motorway in the UK? You know, they've already spent too much money on it. There's no money in the budget to do that. So did they try and do it on the cheap just with uh, just with gantries and, and you... You know, you buy cheap, you pay twice. What you're suggesting, James, is is a, a, could be a triumph of British design and engineering, which will probably never happen. I tell you what, that's a that's a f-ing genius idea, isn't it? I know you're going to have to bleep that out. That's a f-ing brilliant idea, isn't it? 
Well, what you could have as well, the next uh, gantry that is displaying the big red cross, as well as displaying a big red cross above, it drops a great big curtain of light down in front of it. <laughs> big poles, big solid metal poles with a big red cross on going, do you f***ing get it now? <laughs> <laughs> or do we have, you know, something Clang. like the, uh, you know, it... it drops down um you know sort of rubber anvils. rubber bricks or things like that yeah a rubber anvil or a foam no, anvil, anvil just anvils. to get your attention and then the last one before it is a real anvil so you get your warning <laughs> you get that for comedy value and then finally yes it's a proper anvil roadrunner style in, in all seriousness at night time for example you could do that you could have lasers pointing directly down mm-hmm yeah, there, there would be some, you, know, you could project something onto the road potentially, saying "Get out of this lane." Uh, we, yeah, we, it doesn't necessarily need to be something mechanical, but what needs to happen is that lane needs to be shut a section before it needs to be, so it is shut. Whatever, however, where they do it, whether it's physically with some sort of barrier cone, something that pops out, whatever it might be, whether it's lights that come down beforehand just to tell to tell you know you need to get over and stagger people into the next lane because people don't get it and t- today i was i was having to go through roadworks and the countdown this typical countdown you know this this road this lane is stopping this lane stopping 800 600 400 200 people still going along in the right in the right hand lane and suddenly going oh hang on a second i've got to stop now because i can't get it's just the mind boggles. It's, it couldn't be any bigger. Some of the signs of motorways like the size of your house. Well, that's not wanting to be beaten. That's how can I be the first to move in? That means someone's got ahead of me. We can't possibly have that. That's uh, He's got an advantage over me. I've lost. Everything's a race now. That's the whole problem. And you can't be seen to be the one that's given in early because that shows weakness. I got all the way to the front. Barged my way in. Look at me. I'm invincible. You, you mentioned the word race, whereas we, we are looking at uh, a convenient way of ending the species on this planet if we keep going the way we are. We'll yep. be piled up in traffic accidents. So if you're the kind of person that does this, drives down closed lanes and tries to push your way in, and no one thinks you're a genius, everyone thinks you're a dick. Moving on. Regular listeners of the podcast will remember that we mentioned the Mitsubishi auction a couple of episodes ago, Sad and I've, times. Uh, I've been mm. I've, uh, I've been watching a, uh, a few items on there with interest. Well, I, to be fair, it was uh, for me it was the first item on the list, so I only needed to look at one thing because that's uh, that's what I wanted. The Evo Six Tommy Mackinnon edition. Currently, I, I can't quite you know when I saw the price, I was like, yeah, that's that's, that's really 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 strong but then i realized that was just the current bid and uh and at time of recording it still has nine days to go so by the time you're listening to this there's there's probably just a bit under a week to go um so if you're listening to this have a look at uh, autoauction.co.uk and you'll see all the mitsubishi listings on there but it's at, at 77 and a half thousand pounds and it lot. still has nine days to go. I mean, from, from my experience of selling stuff for auction on eBay, and this is totally the same, it's, uh, it's in the last couple of minutes that the auction tends to go uh, tends to go a bit mad and reach a crescendo. But to be at £77,500, still with over a week to go, is, is just absolutely insane. I mean, there's 383 people watching it, apparently. Probably only 382 of them are watching it just for the sake of watching it, and there's one or two serious bidders. But it's a, that's that's just a phenomenal amount of money. Forty-six bidders, in fact, so far. 
or 46 uh, bit, yeah 46 so just flicking back through it was the uh, I, I always like the first bidders because some you know somebody's got to place the first bid but uh, you know uh, first first guy and 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 don't know how you pronounce that it's just letters uh placed a bid for a hundred pounds i mean that's optimistic i uh, i do like his options <laughs> and uh, swiftly uh, swiftly followed up by uh jzx tourer 200 pounds cameron p swooped in with 300 pounds then mark ukgbs with a 20 grand bid so uh, all three of them were out at that stage but it's uh yeah just going up in uh, in reasonably big chunks and I like the absentee bids as well. I presume that means somebody set the upper limit and it bids on their behalf. But it's almost like, oh, whilst you're away, I, I bid uh, £66,100 for you. Oh, did you? Oh, OK, fine. Well, I, I can't afford that. It doesn't matter. It's already gone beyond that. But it's, uh, I mean, what, what a car. I'd, uh, I'd dearly love to own that. But it uh, makes me feel a, a bit old and a bit nostalgic. But I remember those, a few of those roaming around Worthing when they were... Uh, sort of fairly close to brand new and, and at £20,000. Mm-hmm. So not a bad investment at all. friend of mine swapped his three-door Sierra Cosworth for one. I say a friend of mine. He's a, I don't know from one of the car clubs. But yeah, he had a, a had a three-door, swapped it for Tommy Mac. And he turned up and he was like, what have you done? Why would you Has do he still that? still got it? But I have no idea. I haven't seen him for some time. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, to, to be fair, a, uh, you know, a, a Sierra Cosworth in commensurate condition is is at least that figure if not more these days isn't it on uh, on the right day yeah but it's uh, i mean this okay this one is is going for more because it is the one if you if you want to buy one this is the one to buy simple as that because uh, the mileage and 10, the, the miles, provenance and yeah 10,000 yeah. miles i think it had uh, it had been sold but then the uh, the engine blew up so uh, mitsubishi swapped the uh, they put a new engine in it uh, under warranty and and ended up buying the car back off the uh, the owner not that long after but i'm not quite sure on that i mean it's okay it's an unusual car but that that kind of puts you off a little bit was it a uh, you know a buyback and uh, something else gone wrong with it so mitsubishi just gave him his money back to keep him quiet and keep him happy but i don't know if if that was you and the engine had blown up and then you rejected it so you got your 20 odd grand back a few years ago you'd, you'd probably be a bit upset by now wouldn't you looking at that figure mm. what a bit of care i mean what else is that's obviously uh auction number one there's uh, there's plenty of other bits and pieces i'm i have to admit that i i'm particularly attracted to the shogun short wheelbase mark one and and dave you're gonna you're, you're with me on this aren't you yeah oh yeah no so that's what mitsubishi are also known for of course isn't it course they're it is, off-roading yeah. stuff and um rightly so because um they are very, very capable things, and that's a lovely example of one of the first, as you say. I, yeah, I'm quite interested in that one. The other one I quite liked, to go back to the rally theme, there's a 1989 Galant Rally, which was um, designed oh, the to... The Galant, yes. Before there was the uh, Evoluzione and all sorts of other things, there was the Galant, and this one was... Uh, made by Mitsubishi to look just like the one being run by Penti Ariccolo, if you remember him. Sadly, no longer with us, but a very, very capable Finnish, uh, British-based Finnish driver who was uh, had a few good results on the, the rallies over the years, particularly good on the old Lombard stages. And uh, this was put out there as a, a promotional vehicle, and it also worked as the course car for a few years as well, going ahead before the um, the rally cars themselves headed off down the road. And at the moment, it's only up for 9,600. So uh, had I the wherewithal, I, you know, I was interested enough and had someone to keep it, of course, I, uh, I might buy that for old time's sake, because I quite have fond memories of the Lombard RAC, and particularly people like Penty. He was uh, he was quite a handful. I seem to remember him having quite a, quite a few nasty little accidents in Kielder, but uh, mm-hmm. 
very capable man nonetheless. I do remember the Galant as a very impressive road car. I remember it very favourably from testing it when it first came on the market. Good car. There's a Group N uh, X, well, it's a works rally car. So it's, a, it's an Evo 9 in there. That's only at 35 and a half at the moment. I think that's a lot of car for the money. I think it'd be hilarious if you just pitched up a, you know, for a track day with it as well, wouldn't it? Well, given the, uh, given the price of uh, number plates uh, that are also going on the side, um, that's, that's probably quite a good buy. But I'm uh, just reading the description. It says the private plate is not included with the, uh, with the sale. So maybe not quite uh, as good. But yeah, that, that'd be a, a track day weapon and a half, that, wouldn't it? You would. And then when you got bored, you could just go off track, disappear off across the grass. Make your yeah, that'd circuit. be a good solution for uh, for smart motorways as well. If everything gets a bit busy, then you you could drive over the embankment and into the field and uh, and just carry on. Nothing would get in your way. <laughs> Did Mitsubishi ever own up to uh, exactly what FQ stood for in the name of these things? I think we all know, really, but uh, did they ever come up with an alternative? I don't think they did. No, it was just always assumed that we all knew that that's what it was and it didn't need to be <laughs> anything else. I think the least attractive of all of the vehicles in there is an Outlander from 2015, which is currently at £16,000. So if you want a not particularly exciting FEV, which is a remarkably average car in my book, there you go. Sixteen grand. I think I'd rather spend a bit more. In fact, I'd rather spend a bit less and have either the Galant or ever so slightly less. I, I can't believe this. I should just tell a lie. It's at exactly the same money at this point. There is an L200 Desert Warrior that looks hmm. incredible. It's got winching bits and pieces on the front, I think. Let's have, a, let's have a closer look at the pictures. It just says, good evening, ladies. Captain Thrust has landed. It's incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. I want that. And it's got a, a bike that comes out the back in the middle. That's just cool, isn't it? This medallion, you say? Yeah, oh, yes, well. <laughs> <laughs> it's got caught in my chest here. Oops. This is incredible. We must provide a link to this. So if you are a Ford fan and you've had a look at the Raptor, what you probably want to do is have a look at this now. So again, autoauction.co.uk, take a look. There's an L200, the Desert Spec. It's just it's really cool. It's got massive chunky tyres. It's got a spare pair in the back with a motorbike sandwich in the middle. Uh, a race seat, a snorkel. Yeah, see, it's not, not just a bike, is it? You know, lots of manufacturers on their websites have, you know, people enjoying their active vehicles in an active lifestyle active. with a mountain bike or a kayak on the active back. Active this, yes. this has got a motorbike in the back of it. That's that's just one step above, isn't it? Yes. Night sun, a winch, the whole bit. Yeah, that. That's far more exciting than the fifth. It's got get-out-of-my-way lights, isn't it? Absolutely. It definitely has. does. That's, you, know, you know when you're driving down a country road and someone forgets to turn the high beams off and you flash them <laughs> and they don't do anything about it? You flash them again, they don't do anything about it. You turn that on and then presumably they end up in scenery. Then they're not able to do anything else about it. You would have to retire from driving because you would be classed legally blind after uh, staring at those <laughs> for too long, wouldn't you? Don't move towards the light. Actually, may- maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's people who've stared into those too long then instantly just go and drive on smart motorways. Maybe that's the reason. <laughs> anyway, you've listened to us rattle on for yet another podcast. In the meantime, why don't you go and take a look at these things and see for yourself. Let us know which one you would have. As always, you can get us on the socials at UK Motor Talk or you can write to us at UK Motor Talk Towers, which is exactly what Subaru did. And we'll talk to you more about that next time. So, as always, from me, Mike, it's goodbye. From me, Jim, it's goodbye. Take care. From me, Graham, it's goodbye. Look after yourselves. And from me, Dave, goodbye. Take care and uh, stay out of the lane with the big red cross above the top, if you will. (laughs) Thank you.
UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.